Welcome to All Shall Be Well, a conversation hosted by InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions, giving voice to women seeking to live fully into their God-given callings and be a redeeming influence, whether in the university or beyond. In this episode of All Shall Be Well, Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond, our guest is poet and professor Susanna Childress. This is Susanna's second time on the podcast, where we continue our conversation about grief and suffering, particularly noting the loss of Susanna's two children who died in utero. In our discussion, we also dig into the role of creativity in justice work and faith. Additionally, Susanna offers her thoughts about the power of words to lift up and encourage one another, particularly as women. Susanna also generously shares with us a portion of an essay she recently wrote, where she wrestles with how to discuss death and injustice with her young children. Susanna writes short fiction, creative nonfiction, and poetry. She authored poetry volumes Jagged with Love and Entering the House of Awe, and a forthcoming collection of essays, Extremely Yours. She earned her master's degree at University of Texas at Austin, her PhD at Florida State, and held a Lilly Fellows postdoc at Valparaiso University. Currently, she teaches at Hope College and lives with her family in Holland, Michigan. We hope you'll find our conversation meaningful. Welcome, Susanna. Thank you so much for your willingness to be a guest on the podcast again, especially in this very full time of year. And one of the things we discuss a lot on the podcast and at The Well, as you may know, is vocation. And I wonder if we could begin our conversation with you sharing a little bit about how you became a writer. Sure. Hi. Thanks for having me again. And my path to becoming a writer is easier to talk about than my path to becoming uh, a professor. And it began early, I think. My joy as a child was creating strange imaginary scenarios. I was writing plays and terrible poems. Well, I should say, (laughs) you should use the adjective terrible in front of everything. But in terms of my understanding of poetry, it was very limited. And yet I created stories and bound them together and, you know, made little books out of them. Some of those were projects that my mom had us do or that we were doing in school, but many of them were just my natural inclination to write. I became more interested in writing seriously in high school when I was on the newspaper staff. And uh, it's not that the quality of my writing got any better, but my purpose for writing became clearer, which was actually via negativa. I realized I was not a journalist in any way. I could not attend to the who, what, when, where, why. (laughs) And how I was more interested in making interesting adjective choices for captions. Almost all (laughs) of which got crossed out, you know, and X'd out by my co-editor and our newspaper facilitator advisor person. She was very gentle with me and very encouraging along with my high school English teachers. And so when I got to college and I recognized that writing was a major I was thrilled and I had a professor who really from the very beginning encouraged me in such profound ways and challenged me in such profound ways that I became a much stronger writer because I was reading all Mm -hmm. kinds of materials I 
I hadn't before. Contemporary American poetry being sort of the foremost and contemporary novels as well. I took a nonfiction course as an undergrad and didn't really enjoy it because I couldn't lie. That's uh, <laughs> the way I saw it. But I have since, you know, all through graduate school, I studied poetry and fiction and just always wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. And then I hit a point when my son died, when Jericho died, that I could not make sense of language in the same mm. way anymore. And so at that point, I began writing nonfiction, mm. fragmented nonfiction, but it became in some ways more important to tell an autobiographical truth. And so that's what I'm working on right now. I have been writing mostly nonfiction for several years. Mm. And your poetry prior to the experience of losing your son, was it a mix of nonfiction and fiction? How would you describe the poetry that you wrote prior to? That's a great question because I saw very little distinction between the work of poetry as needing to be autobiographical. And yet I was constantly borrowing from my own life. I felt a great deal of freedom in poetry because I... I don't believe there's a social contract the same way there is in nonfiction. Okay. I have a great deal of freedom in poetry, as I would in fiction, to change the autobiographical truth to fit and to move towards what I saw as capital T truth. So mm -hmm. if something didn't necessarily happen, I wasn't writing my own story. I was writing a poem and I could change space or time, certainly was able to change what people said or what people did, what I said, what I did, or, you know, the speaker, because it wasn't me. And I wrote mm -hmm. in persona all the time. I felt a great deal of freedom to write persona poems. I felt like it was really important, actually, to write poems that were not from my own perspective. So it confused my audiences for sure when I would read a poem about breast cancer, having breast cancer, and was not a breast cancer survivor. When I was writing about being divorced and I wasn't personally divorced, when there were other aspects of my poetry that was true, that was, you know, sort of fit my autobiographical story. So people were often confused by that. And I, so I would try and delineate when I was reading which ones were drawn from my own life and which ones were not. Mm -hmm. But in terms of people reading the poems on their own, it didn't seem important to me that that was part of the fabric, whether it was autobiographical or not, so much as approaching the poems as, you know, living things that aren't fulfilled until they're read by a reader. And it's really mm -hmm. not about me so much mm -hmm. as it is the poem being an act of play with language and experimentation with truth, mm. engaging with truth through language. And I love that phrase, capital T truth, doesn't have to be your personal experience, but you're getting to this sort of universal truth, if I can say universal truth, like pain is pain, 
and that creating a picture of it or creating an experience of what might be happening, which as you'd mentioned earlier, is very different than journalism, right? Totally. So then related to truth and telling the truth, I know you to be a person who cares deeply about justice and about telling the truth in that space as well and in that sphere, and that justice work is a thread that runs through your life. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the relationship amongst faith, justice, and creative work. That's a powerful question that I'm still leaning into and learning about. And of course, I would don't want it to appear as though I've arrived anywhere. And I've made I feel as though I've made some some pretty serious mistakes along the way that I've had to own in mm-hmm. this regard. But I encountered a few texts early on coming out of grad school early in marriage. So that introduced me to specific ideas about the ways that Christians engage with justice and activism. And they were texts that were deeply critical of maybe not the church as a whole in America, but specifically, definitely white evangelicals. And I was very challenged by those ideas I was also encountering at the same time deep criticism of liberals in general and Mm -hmm. progressives in general, their acts of justice and working towards equity. And so I became, I think, conflicted about what I had seen modeled within the church and at the same time became really engaged in what the Bible says, what scripture says about taking action in the face of injustice mm-hmm. and praying for and pursuing justice. And I realized that I have been critiqued as embracing aspects of liberation theology. And I feel very frustrated by the ways that what could really change our understanding about activism is dismissed because of liberation theology. I probably feel that way about critical race theory right now too as well. That there are things that we could grow exponentially in if we stopped being worried about whether an entire group of ideas is perfect or not. And we want to be critical thinkers, right? But I feel frustrated that so many of the really powerful ideas of liberation theology have been completely dismissed. And in similar ways, I I feel that about critical race theory. And I wonder if it's because it's easier for us, for me as a white evangelical Christian, to keep doing what I've been doing and be able to point out the things that I see as illegitimate in liberation theology or critical race theory, because it's deeply threatening. It is to how we have, and I don't use this word lightly, manufactured a sense of ourselves as as just beings. Hmm. And it seems to me really important that we be shaken to our core. And that doesn't mean that we dismantle everything But my Mm -hmm. sense of what even the word ministry is and serving and being sent, I've had to question a lot of that. And 
because I don't think it honors God's creation as a Mm -hmm. whole. And I don't think it sets us up to recognize equity. (laughs) We believe in equality, but our systems are such that there is not equity. And if we can't see that, if we're so threatened and unwilling to see that, then what we are doing to recognize equality feels moot Hmm. and really isn't changing us from the inside out. And so my understandings of the way these intersect have to do with the words of Christ, the actions of Christ, and the hope of redemption in Hmm. fallen systems, starting with individuals. And I believe deeply that God enables us to be creative about our own failures, our own inherited sense of what right is. Mm -hmm. And so part of the creative process is humility. Mm -hmm. And part of it is re-envisioning and reimagining. And sometimes it means recognizing when something's not working even though you love it, even though it maybe makes you feel good (laughs) that, Mm. you know, ultimately in making something, if it's not working, you have to let it go and begin anew or rework what's there over and over. And it takes so much time and energy and it hurts. But I, I see the only way that I can have hope right now is trying to see justice as a creative process by which we humbly recognize the things that are not just not working, but in fact, hurting others and even hurting ourselves in terms of who God desires us to be. So they are really intertwined, but I don't know sometimes who I'm speaking to and how how certain elements of that will be understood as heretical or too postmodern or, you know, whatever, whatever the critique is. And I feel uncertain a lot. I feel that I'm continually having to figure out how to articulate to myself and then to others lovingly why we keep pressing into this. Again, I appreciate your comment that humility is sort of the foundation of it, that that's the beginning. That's the space where we have to start from. And in many ways, some of those phrases that you mentioned, like liberation theology or critical race theory are very loaded for people. And so entering in with humility and grace and looking at Jesus and looking at his actions and his words, those are good words on how to have the conversation, even though it's very challenging. Well, and even if I can make a tie to one other element, which is that This was one of the important things for me as a young writer, which I couldn't have recognized at that moment, but writing persona poems. And I never wrote outside my own demographic, really. I was almost always writing from the perspective of a white woman. So Mm -hmm. I I want to say that. But the decentering of self, right, like putting yourself in someone else's situation and recognizing that you're not, (laughs) your own ideas are just that sort of encapsulated and inherited. And so decentering the self, which is something that 
I maybe did instinctively as a writer has been really, really important in this work also is to, it's not, it's not just the work of an empath, but it really is the willingness to put myself aside and think outside myself. And I also believe that that's an act of not redemption, but that's, that's a really Christian act. Mm-hmm. Sure. And, yeah. Yeah, that act of working working toward justice or working toward understanding of someone else's experience in the same way that reading scripture from the perspective of someone who's not white for us, right, as white women to hear from other people who are not white. You know, I, I remember listening to a sermon from Austin Channing Brown about the story of the woman whose sons are killed and she goes up to the, the mountain and like laments, can't remember her name. It's a woman in scripture that we never really hear about, which is probably part of why I've only ever heard about it from her. I hear it now. Yeah, well, I'll send it to you. There's these pieces, right, of scripture that if we're only looking at it or reading it through our own lens with our own selves at the center, then we're not hearing the fullness of it. We're not experiencing the fullness of who God is. I feel like that's sort of what you're trying to say there. And so decentering ourselves, and that can be true for all of us. Kind of shifting gears, you had mentioned before about writing pieces that were autobiographical and recently, somewhat recently, what is time anymore with this pandemic? I feel like I don't know when when things happened. So somewhat recently, within the past few years, you wrote an essay entitled For Before I Begin Again. And you write in that piece about pregnancy, about trauma, which includes your individual trauma, collective trauma, and sort of intergenerational trauma as well, and then about starting over. And one of the sentences in that essay, I mean, the whole thing is remarkable. I really appreciated so much of it. But one of the sentences that struck me the most, if I'm permitted to quote it, is in the midst of your description of a poignant moment watching the end credits of a Disney movie with your young boys. And you wrote, of all the hot shot, high literary shit I teach and read, it's a pop song in a cartoon movie that's made me feel as if just maybe for a moment I'm resilient. And I love this sentence for layers of reasons, but I think primarily because it makes me think about the power of words and the power of the moments in which words are given and received. And I wonder if you could share your thoughts on how you see women in particular using words to bring healing in the midst of pain and injustice. Yeah, thanks for reading that essay with such generosity and care. And that's a moment when I was recognizing that I was embarrassed to be moved by a pop song. No, I won't give up. I won't give in. I'll keep making the same mistakes. I want to try everything. And the ways that we receive encouragement baffle me, what affects us and why. But I do think that women have been trained to encourage or recognize one another in ways that can be really superficial. That maybe our our impulses to encourage cover our impulse to be critical. We make amends for that in those ways. But in general, it's hard culturally for us to move towards one another with very particular exhortation and mm. praise because 
I don't know if we're shy about it or if we haven't been taught to do it well, but to move towards someone and say, this is what I really believe about you and who you are Mm -hmm. is very vulnerable. Yeah. And, and so sometimes we do that in sort of cheap ways and we make parlor games out of it, right? Where, you know, a group of women just standing around saying, you got this, you're so strong, go girl. Mm -hmm. And I would rather see that than criticism and negativity and frustration. But I also think that when someone speaks from a place of vulnerability, uh, maybe that was what's in that song, the admission of making mistakes. Hmm. So as women, when we offer, what was the, how was the way you put it? Using words to, to bring healing in the midst of pain and injustice, the way that that works meaningfully is when there's vulnerability and authenticity and humility at the core. Hmm. Because we we have been trained to be cheerleaders, mostly for men. Sure. Right? Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> right? That we, yeah. we stand next to the men in our lives or the men we see as doing good work and we cheer for them. And so we take some of that same energy and emotion to do the same for women. And that's where some of that cheaper sort of rah-rah rhetoric comes in. But when we are able to say, this is where I'm broken and this is how I'm struggling. This is, I'm just going to try and I'm going to fail, but I'm going to try again. (laughs) That Mm -hmm. too feels really simple. But when it comes from a place of authenticity and humility, I think it's very powerful. And I've been encouraged in the pandemic to see women saying, I'm not doing well. I'm not doing this well. I do think that the brunt of this season has fallen on women, most of the domestic work. And so those are the voices I'm listening to. People who are saying, I'm struggling and I had one good day here's what happened in my, you know, one good moment or one day. So the ability to encourage one another and exhort one another comes out of relationship and vulnerability. For me, it's always going to come back to vulnerability, to seeing flaws and seeing pain and what can come in the midst of that, not just despite it. It's interesting as you are describing that humility and vulnerability and the words coming out of that space, it it reminded me of sort of envisioning Jesus washing the disciples' feet or Jesus weeping, Jesus doing all these things and saying things that we would typically associate with sort of more feminine behavior. And even as you described, like the ways in which we've been socialized to cheerlead for the men in our lives, even extending it to that space too, to that being out of a place of humility or vulnerability as well, and not just the Mm rah-rah, but to do that for both men and the women in our lives versus often, right? We see women competing with one another rather than even cheerleading. But there's something entirely different that if we look even to Jesus' example of like, coming out of that space of vulnerability, really reaching out to each other from that space of, we don't have it all together. Let's not have it all together, together. Yes, because we won't want to compete with each other when it's not ego at stake, but 
a desire to be broken together. Sure. We truly want to see someone do well, even if I can't do that. My husband introduced me to this phrase, holy jealousy. Hmm. In I'm part of something that he is doing called school of prayer. And there's a lot of contemplation. And every other week when we get together, we will talk about the things in our rule of life that are going well or not well. And I often feel this surge of, oh my gosh, I wish that were happening to me. And I can see that as, I see that now as a kind of holy jealousy, that the good work that God is doing, I long for that. Mm. And I also know that there are weeks that that person has had major downs too, right? And so recognizing the goodness that is happening in someone and longing for it because it is what I desire. I desire God to do good in my life, not maybe that exact good, but something good like that. Hmm. And if we are coming with vulnerability and surrender and holy jealousy, that feels helpful or even healthy Mm -hmm. to, yeah, to recognize that. Yeah. That has a different feel to it than like envy where it comes out of a place of sort of maybe even feeling resentment towards that person for the good that God's doing in their life. And in this holy jealousy, I like this term, it's more of recognizing the longing within yourself for God to move and God to be present and to show up in a similar way, maybe not the same way but to yeah. to see redemption show up in all those yeah. spaces. So speaking then of longing or redemption in our lives, in our previous conversation on the podcast, we talked a lot about grief. And in some ways, especially this past year, grief feels unending and that there's more to say. And in the spirit of women offering words to bring healing to one another, I wonder if you'd be willing to read something that you've written recently, whether it be related to grief or related to justice and faith or anything else that you feel led to share. Sure. I'm writing what are called braided essays. So like there's several different strands of things and then Mm. I'm weaving them together. I had an essay called Age Appropriate where I was wrestling with what to tell my child about Mm. stillbirth and miscarriage, what to tell my child about police brutality and, you know, his black friend and the ways they can or can't act out in Mm -hmm. public. And then some larger issues like Ebola and white savior complex and some of those things. But I have a section that I can read that has sort of all three in age appropriate. Go for it. The year we lose Jericho, so many things seem to shatter all at once, not just my body's betrayal to two babies or theirs to mine, but also my partner's work and emotional health, my father's kidneys during a trip to Togo, the outbreak of Ebola in West Africa, the deaths of Michael Brown, Eric Garner, Tamir Rice, among others. By the end, I truly don't know what's appropriate to tell my four-year-old and what to save from him. Or is it save him from? That troubling line in parenting, you want to save, but you can't. At the very least, you're responsible for keeping them alive and at the very most, thriving on all levels. It's tempting to let yourself be confused about this at every turn. One day, standing between the class turtles and the coat room, I broached the subject of death with my son's preschool teacher, 
A woman whose kind eyes and taste in sensible shoes makes her seem unflappable. How might I help my son understand? I am, of course, thinking of Jericho. We'd not yet lost Tiernan. But untimely, senseless at large, if not untimely, senseless up close, death feels unsuitable for my conversations with my son, as though I'm trying to fit these huge, unwieldy objects, a life-size ceramic rhino, say, in quaint, ridiculously dainty packages, like a handful of jewelry boxes. His teacher blinks at me from behind her glasses. She hugs me. She sends me home with several photocopied sheets with tips on what to cover and what to avoid. Instead of, grandpa is sleeping, or don't cry, you'll see grandpa one day, we should aim to be as literal and straightforward as possible. Grandpa's body stopped working, which is what caused him to die. And grandpa's not coming back. And it's okay to cry, we all miss him. Lots of assurance and follow-up and safe touch and good sleep and freedom to question. The packet has a short paragraph on cultural customs surrounding funerals and another paragraph on the loss of pets. I'm grateful. I read each page several times over. And yet, grandpas and goldfish aren't exactly going to help me with a baby brother who died in utero or Ebola or black men shot in the back by law enforcement. As much as I appreciate the straightforwardness of these pages, the advice feels too breezy. Or maybe I'm asking too much. Maybe it's not really death I need help with, but grief. Maybe we all need help with lamentation. I type what to tell a child into a search engine and then add police brutality, joblessness, stillborn, depression, communicable disease. Most sites have a helpful suggestion or two, chief among them, age-appropriate words, ideas, and images. Of course, one might think. Certainly, duh, one might be inclined to say. In general, I agree with the use of age-appropriate language and visuals. I'm all for not demonstrably terrifying the children. But what age-appropriate means, how it's interpreted, the intrinsic seepage of parenting style and political ideals and religious beliefs make all the murkier how and what and when I choose to say what I need to say to my sons, two white boys from a Protestant family in a small Midwestern North American town. Before Ebola, my sister and her husband's chief concern is cancer. The country does not have any oncologists. Another chief concern, premature labor, and twins, all manner of twins, which in West Africa is as typical as singletons elsewhere. In Adete, Togo, as in much of the world, the travel and costs are prohibitive, such that patients only come to the hospital. Its catchment area is half a million people, with the most dire, the most deadly of ailments. My sister and her husband have reckoned with the implacable. They are not saviors. They work endless shifts. They train and equip Togolese nurses and midwives and medical technicians. The point is to work themselves out of a job. But many of their patients, most of them, will not survive. No children's book exists for this, of course. No high detailed glossy photos of the ones who, if they lived where my son and I live, might have survived. 
But even this is not altogether true. Black women in the US, for instance, have markedly higher maternal mortality. The most recent research indicates as much as three times higher than Caucasian women. And we've not yet begun to consider Ebola, which never did reach Togo, but was contained in Sierra Leone, Guinea, and Liberia, killing 11,315 people. Which is to say, we don't have to consider Ebola, not really. We can find age-appropriate words, ideas, and images for my sons to let them know they are safe, safer, safest. No Ebola here, buddy. Nobody you know with Ebola. But where are the age-appropriate words to examine why the only time anyone in the U.S. talks about an epidemic is when it's a threat to us? One fellow in Dallas endangered us all because Black people equal dangerous. One white American doctor became a hero because white Americans equal eminently good. Otherwise, you know, so what? It's just 11,000 dead West Africans. The shocking number of black women who died during or after childbirth here in the States. Is there a similar referendum of silence surrounding this too? My son finds me face down on the floor. I'm trying to stifle my weeping in the gray weave of the carpet. My hands are slicked with mucus, my lungs hitching at the back end of each sob. I hear him behind me, my name in his mouth, not a question, but the soft lilt of a song. He's seen me like this before, laid low with sorrow. He doesn't know it, but this time it's not about a baby. It's not a Togolese patient. This time it's the white man walking into an AME church and after sitting with worshipers through a Bible study and listening to their prayers, pulling out a gun and shooting them. Again and again, he shot because they were black, because they are black people. He shot them in the basement of their church as a racist to incite a race war. What's a race war, mama? What's a racist? These somehow are questions I can answer, but the project of being a parent is also the project of being human. It's the questions that follow, the but whys that I cannot. History spiraling back into hate and greed and power, the warping and leaping to end up right back in the present. He's just turned five, has picked out a raccoon lunchbox to take to kindergarten in the fall and practices his colors in Spanish when we go for walks in the unfurling of June. Already he can trill Amarillo's R, though the same sound in Negro, reference to a car makes me flinch because white people are broken or evil. Which one is more age appropriate? That's beautiful. Beautiful in the sense of telling the truth, telling the truth in such a way that also sits in the foundation of humility, as you mentioned before, because it's the question of how do we tell these things in a way to our children, how do we have these conversations with anyone in a way that doesn't claim to have the answer or the solution? Yeah, I hope so. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for reading that to us. I wrote that back in 2016. Right, before any global pandemic that affected us. Right. And the ways that that has made even more clear the gaps in equity Mm. and how we think about what we think about and what we tell our kids. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just stunned by the way in which you write and you tell the truth in a way that creates 
an experience, like an emotional experience too. And if I can go back again to the essay for Before I Begin Again, and we'll link to that essay so the listeners can read it. You bring up again, these themes of uncertainty and life and death and justice and healing. And one of the themes that comes up in For Before I Begin Again is the theme of breathing. And that's woven throughout. And in one particular paragraph, you write about the poet Li Yang Li, who was one of the poets that I studied in undergrad, my professor for a particular class. I can't remember the name of the course, but she was obsessed, it might be fair to say, with Li Yang Li's poetry. And so I was delighted to see him come up in this essay of yours. Anyway, you write about Li Young Li speaking of breathing in terms of life and death. And you wrote, when inhaling, Li says, your body is filled with oxygen, nutrients, nitrogen. Your bones get harder, your muscles and skin get flush, so you're full of life. Then in exhalation, bones soften, muscles go slack, nutrients abandon the blood. That, Lee tells us, is the dying breath, upon which, of course, rides our spoken words. All speech is born on the dying breath. And this past year, right, much of the tragedy and justice that we have witnessed, or for some personally experienced, has been related to the inability to breathe. And I wonder if you could offer more thoughts about this theme of breath in your work and how you see it intersect with your faith as well. So I heard Lee Young Lee say this in a reading that he was giving, and it struck me as even more powerful because I wasn't just reading it, I was hearing him say, which means that I was listening to something emerge from the dying breath, his mm -hmm. dying breath. And he had a wonderful sort of cyclical way of understanding breathing in and breathing out, but that the work done by one of them cannot be done without the other and that they work with each other. But it's important to also recognize the work that's done by the intake breath and the outgoing breath. And there was something profound for me in recognizing not just the work they do as a unit, but the work that they do individually. And, you know, I think I'm using this as a metaphor for the ways that, for some reason, the phrase toxic positivity comes up in my mind. Mm. That sometimes we just want to take in breath, take in breath, take in breath as, you know, the metaphor, the life, 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 the flushness of life, the fullness of life, the power of life, but there is important work that is done too in the release and the dying breath, the things that happen in the exhalation and speech itself, which I thought was really powerful, again, sort of as a metaphor for we cannot speak if we're inhaling or it's, it's actually very hard to do. So the releasing, the letting go and being able to say something, right, like that's when we can communicate with each other, when we're not being full, getting life, but letting that go and sort of relaxing and the slackness of that, the perhaps the, the dullness or the deadness of that. And this maybe has been important to me in, in two ways. One is that I am compelled right now to listen. And I'm not sure where listening fits in terms of the breathing in and the breathing out, but I feel very aware that 
that I personally, and I think at large white Christians have wanted to talk and have had the stage for so long, but are claiming the life and the fullness are not claiming death and weakness, dullness, are sort of wanting the best of both, to be heard, to be understood, to have the power. And so it strikes me as a really important life-giving act to listen. And I realize I'm talking as I say this, and I'm using <laughs> a whole podcast, right, to sort of speak myself. And so that irony is not lost on me. But in other realms, I have made it for the past four years, I have only been reading or I have prioritized reading BIPOC writers. So, you know, if a poet I love comes out with a new book and she's a white woman, it goes on the bottom of my list because I want to be reading fiction, nonfiction, journalism, listening to podcasts, poetry, plays, the things that I take in, I want to be from writers, thinkers, scholars of color. That feels exceptionally important to me right now. And I really wish, like, I just wonder what would happen if that were a priority for a majority of white Christians. What would happen in our bookstores? What would happen in our places of worship? What would happen, right? Like, I'm really curious about that if white Christians did a lot more listening. And I feel like it would change what comes out on our dying breath. I know that I have been affected in such particular ways in what I want to write, what I want to say by listening and listening to voices that are not of my own demographic, not of my own privileged space. So, you know, the other aspect of this, and I think we've we've encountered this in the pandemic recently where I get, at least I've heard folks saying, you know, maybe now I understand a little bit about what it means to be constricted or cornered in some way. I understand what it means not to have the same abilities and privileges I always have. And, and I hear people of color, specifically Black people saying, you have some small sense of the way I've had to live my entire life. And, and that's not going away for me, right? Like when the mandates and the certain governing rules change, you get to go back to living your life. So please, can you recognize this? Like, can you draw parallels and really let this, having lived even a small portion and having your lens maybe change just a little bit, that for me feels again, like this ability to breathe that we often compare our freedom, you know, or when we get panicked or worried, a lot of us say, I can't breathe. And that freedom, equity, justice, those things are inhibiting whole people groups from breathing freely, from living, from taking in the oxygen, the nutrients, the nitrogen, right? And if we will listen to the speech that's on their dying breath, if we would listen really closely to what the folks who have less of this air and less of this freedom to breathe, what is being said there? And how can we listen more generously and be affected by what's coming out on that dying breath? Are there particular writers that you would point us to? 
there's a huge list of writers, but I could name a few that I'm reading. I've just started working through Howard Thurman, starting with Jesus and the Disinherited. So a theologian and writer who affected Martin Luther King hugely. I'm reading James Cone, starting with The Cross and the, the Lynching Tree, and Ibram X. Kendi, stamped from the beginning. But in terms of literary writing that I'm reading that I'm really loving, there's a book called Thick and Other Essays by Tressie McMillan Cottom. That last name is C-O-T-T-O-M. She's really wonderful, along with Austin Channing Brown, who I appreciate in writing, but also podcast and online. There's a poet that I recently was able to hear read. His name's Aaron Coleman. He has a, a book called Threat Come Close that I really love. And some fiction writers, short stories by Renee Sims called Meet Me Behind Mars. And Jessamine Ward, I would read any novel that she writes. And Colson Whitehead, a book that my husband and I are reading aloud right now called The Nickel Boys. Thank you for those suggestions. We will post links in the show notes. Well, thank you again, Susanna, for taking time today to share your words with us. And as you know, we like to conclude the podcast with the same question to all of our guests. Is there a particular set of words that has been meaningful to you lately? And could you share those words and why they resonate with you at this time? Yeah, I've been reading a book of essays by Alicia Elliott called A Mind Spread Out on the Ground. And she is a Canadian writer. She lives in Canada and she's a First Nation writer. She's indigenous. And she has this wonderful section about what it means to write and have empathy. I'd love to read you in this essay. Is called On Seeing and Being Seen. Writing with empathy is not enough. It never has been. Depictions, and she's written about several of the ways that Indigenous writers have been depicted very recently, are proof that white people are willing to extend only so much empathy to those who aren't white. Empathy has its limits. And contrary to what some may think, it is possible to both have empathy for a person and still hold inherited, unacknowledged racist views about them and their worth. How else do you explain the Canadian government's apology for residential schools and pleas for reconciliation, coexisting with its continued purposeful underfunding of Indigenous children? How do you take the U.S. government's 2009 apology for, quote, violence, maltreatment, and neglect inflicted on Native peoples, unquote, seriously when the wording of that very apology refuses any and all legal and financial liability? How do you come to understand a country that expressed outrage when a white woman murdered pregnant 22-year-old Choctaw woman Savannah LaFontaine Greywind, cutting out and stealing her baby in the process? At the same time, the president of that country and his legions of supporters continued to mockingly refer to his white political opponent, Elizabeth Warren, as Pocahontas. Clearly, having empathy is not dependent upon understanding the social, political, and historical circumstances that made that empathy necessary in the first place. Yet we continue to expect empathy alone to create change. 
as though empathy would rethink our priorities, rewrite our laws, and restructure our society for us. To truly write from another experience in an authentic way, you need more than empathy. You need to write with love. And then she lists a number of really wonderful indigenous writers. Wabgeshig Rice, Louise Erdrich, Joy Harjo, Tracy Lindbergh, Eden Robinson, Katharina Vermet, Elisa Washuta, Billy Ray Belcourt, Joshua Whitehead, Lindsay Nixon, Teresa May Mailhot, and Cherie Delmoline. That's what I feel when I read those stories. That's what I hope indigenous people feel when they read my work, love. Love pushes us to believe, even when reason tells us we should stop. Love compels us to move carefully, to consider the consequences of our actions. Love reminds us what's worth fighting for and what isn't. Love begs us to stop being passive and finally act. If you can't write about us with a love for who we are as a people, what we've survived, what we've accomplished, despite all attempts to keep us from doing so, if you can't look at us as we are and feel your pupils go wide, rendering all stereotypes a sham, a poor copy, a disgrace, then why are you writing about us at all? Powerful. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Susanna. And if our listeners didn't know what they should read this summer, you have a whole list all of the writers that you shared with us earlier. So summer reading list here at the end of this podcast. And again, yeah, thank you so much, Susanna. We will have all these things listed in the show notes. And thanks again for your time and offering your words. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of All Shall Be Well, Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond. Information about our guests can be found on our podcast page at thewell.intervarsity.org slash podcasts. This has been a production of Women in the Academy and Professions, a focused ministry initiative of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. We value the contribution of podcast guests who are not employed by InterVarsity, and we acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may or may not represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. Thank you for joining our conversation as we engage in faith and life together. We'd love to hear your feedback. To share your thoughts or to learn more about who we are or the resources and connections we provide, we invite you to visit us at our online gathering place, The Well. You can find us at thewell.intervarsity.org.